All right, good morning, guys. It's good to see you. Um, We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, and thank you for joining us this morning. Um, Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Go into Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you, and um, we're going to page 909 in our Bibles. While you're flipping over there, I want to give you an update. Um, We took a special offering last week. And um, for the slide guy, I forgot to put a, a, a note in there. Go ahead and put up the picture of the building. Um, we did uh, a special offering last week, and I want to give you an update. So we spent a lot of time praying about that and talking about that. Um, so I want to give you that update. We saw um, really a, a, a strong response um, in, in commitments. We saw an additional um, over $48,000 committed to the total capital campaign, um, which is huge. We brought in a little over $11,000 in, uh, in, in the special offering to go toward um, uh, the renovation of the building. And so first of all, I want to thank you. I want to thank all of you that recommitted to the capital campaign. I want to thank you, uh, say thank you to all of you who jumped in for the first time. Um, and uh, your investment is making a significant impact in our ability to move forward uh, with the mission of this church, right? To put down roots in this community so that we can grow in ministry to our neighbors. And secondly, I want to share with you some great news. Um, You guys, you pushed us over the edge. Uh, This week, I signed a contract and the renovation's underway. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it it was pretty exciting. Um, And so we are, um, we're beginning with phase one of the uh, the project. And uh, I I, uh, signed some contracts and and now now comes... um, now comes the fun part, which basically is the final negotiation with the city, sitting down with them with the final drawings and the ADA plans and, and, and all of that. And, and we, had to, we got to get their approval for the two-phase project, which, which none of that should be an issue. We've already been in negotiation. We've already had these conversations. But we, they need to have their engineers sit down. They need to have their, all their technicians and everybody sit down and approve our plans. Um, but all of that really should come together. I'm praying fairly quickly. You can pray about that. That process uh, sometimes can take a long time because there's a lot of specialists that have to sit down and kind of put their approval on it. But it could happen quickly if everything aligns. Um, we're really praying that we're going to be in our building um, really early next year, which means like in four months. Um, that's what we're shooting for is, is that we will be um, meeting there. Uh, in early 2016. So you guys, I, again, I want to say thank you um, really for for just generously committing and being part of the mission of this church. This is exciting, and, um, and, and I'm very, very excited to see what God's going to do um, in and through us as we continue to follow him. All right, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We are continuing our series. We're going to be taking a look at verses 4 through 11. All right, so follow along. And while staying with them, that's Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. All right, so I was tempted to, to name today's message, How to Avoid a Midlife Crisis. Um, it seemed thematically appropriate. Um, but it didn't seem fully appropriate because it didn't apply to everybody in my audience equally, right? Women don't have midlife crisis, right? Uh, they reinvent themselves. Um, I know that uh, for some of you, um, the idea of a midlife crisis seems impossibly far away, right? We got a lot of you in this room, you're like, midlife, what, what you know, does that even come? Um, and, uh, and so I know that, that that title wouldn't be fully appropriate. But let me just tell you a little bit about what happens with a midlife crisis. Here's the thing. You live life doing what you're supposed to do, right? And as you're living life, you, you don't stop to ask why you're doing the things that you do. You don't stop to ask even if they're the right things to be doing, right? They're just the next things, you live life going from, from one thing to the next, and life seems to be like a, a series of, of milestones, right? Important things, one after the other. And, and we don't spend a lot of time questioning these things. We don't spend a lot of time analyzing these things. We just move our way through these things because that's what we do, and that's what everybody else does, right? You, you go to school, you date, you get married, you start your career, you have kids, you, you buy a house, you go on a vacation, you improve your house, you improve your vacation, you try to improve your kids, right? You just keep putting one foot in front of the other, right? You just keep moving. And then one day you wake up and you realize that all the first steps are gone. All of the first milestones have passed. And now you're just doing what you've always done. And you start asking questions like, why am I here? What am I doing? And why am I doing it? I'm working so hard to get somewhere. And it's always just been the next thing. Like if I, I just got to get to the next thing. I just got to get to this milestone. I just have to overcome this challenge. I have to move through this next phase of life, right? I got to get a job. I got to get a wife. I got to get a family. I got to get a better job. I, gotta, I just got to keep moving. You know what I'm saying? Always pushing for the milestones. And then one day you wake up and you realize, what milestones do I have left? And how important are they, Right? Retirement, empty nest, and life changes, right? Instead of it looking like something that's going to get bigger and bigger and better and better, life becomes a diminishment. Life becomes something that starts getting smaller and smaller. Now, some people panic at this stage of the game, right? Some people panic. And, and what they try to do is recapture their youth. They're like, wow, I, I'm panicking. I don't know how to do this next phase. That diminishment feels like, like a devaluation of my value. I'm losing my identity because my identity was always the one who was plowing through life, achieving things. And, and now that I'm at this phase, I, 
I kind of have to go back, right? And that's how you end up with balding dudes wearing gold chains with open collars, driving exotic convertibles, <laughs> trying to pick up girls that are the age of their daughters, right? That's really sad. It's really sad. There's something a whole lot better. That's what I want to call you to this morning. There's something a whole lot better. And, and if you want to just call it something, you can call it intentional living. It's a whole lot better. And it comes from understanding this life. It comes from not just living life, but having a purpose in the living of life. It comes from actually moving from point A to point B, but knowing why you're going to point B and why it's important that you get there. As followers of Jesus, this is especially important. And our text this morning unpacks this. Our text this morning has incredible insight into the purpose of our lives. This is not just a historical text of, of a scholarly interest. It is incredibly insightful into why we're here and how we should be living our lives. So before we dig into our text, let me remind you a little bit of what we covered last week right? Let me, let me talk a little bit about where we are in the big story, right? We unpacked this last week. We talked about the big story or the one true story of human history. In other words, the Bible, right? The Bible is a single book, even though it was written um, over the span of 2,000 years, 66 books, around 40 authors, uh, three different languages, um, uh, multiple changing cultures. It tells a single compelling story. And this is the compelling storyline of the Bible. It is the, the, the single compelling storyline of human history, right? So let me just remind you, it begins with creation where God creates. And in that creation, all things are good, right? That's the message of Genesis 1 and 2. All things are good, which is basically a statement that not only is this a paradise, but it is a paradise because God's shalom is present. And if you remember, shalom is a Hebrew word that is vibrant and rich, and it means a whole lot more than simply a lack of conflict. It means the presence of, and the flourishing of life, of balance, of wholeness, of, of, of just the, it's the way life was meant to be, right? And then, of course, stage two or act two of this storyline is the great rebellion in which mankind created in the image of God looks at God and says, we will no longer submit to you as God. We will no longer follow you as God. We will be like God. We will no longer center ourselves on your glory. We will live for our own. We will no longer order our steps after your storyline for our lives. We will create our own storyline. We will tune ourselves to ourselves instead of to your glory. And that, of course, broke shalom. Every critical area of human relationship was broken in that moment, right? The relationship to self, the introduction of shame and guilt, the, the introduction of every form of mental and emotional dysfunction was born in that moment, right? Our lack of shalom with God, our distance from God. God no longer is a warm and welcoming presence. His perfection becomes threatening to us. We hide ourselves from God. We diminish him and magnify ourselves and he becomes threatening to us. We lose shalom with each other. The introduction of personal conflict in which we no longer live in community, we now live in competition, right? Your glory is a threat to my glory. Your self-interest is a threat to my self-interest. And we live in competition with one another. And we lost shalom with the created order. We lose our identity and our work. Instead of working for the glory of God, we try to establish our own glory through our work. We see creation itself rising up against the hand of the steward of creation. Earthquakes, tsunamis, 
landslides. The earth itself rises up. There's a lack of shalom between man and creation. The next stage of the story is really a beautiful one because God didn't leave us in that mess. God didn't say, okay, I'm going to walk away and just let you live with the results of what you've created. He promises to break into our story to redeem it. He promises to send a hero of the story who will redeem the story. He is absolutely determined. He created um, this earth and he created mankind in his image that he might get the glory while we live in the overflow of his good. And he is determined to not let that story be robbed from him. So he promises to send a hero. He promises to send someone who will step into our story and redeem it. That the, our rebellion will not be the final word. And then, of course, we see that promise fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. When Jesus, who, who comes as the, the, the narrowing of that promise, right? He is the son of Eve. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. And finally, he is the son of Mary. And he comes to fulfill the promise to be the hero of the story. And he lives the life we should have lived. And he died the death we deserve to die. And he rose again a new life that he might redeem this broken world. And when he rose from the dead, it wasn't just for him, it was for us. So that we could find hope, right? Now that we are believers in Christ, his resurrection is our resurrection. His new life is our new life. As we simply come to rest in relationship with him, we realize we have shalom now with God. And now that we have shalom with God through Christ, we learn what it is to have shalom with ourselves and with each other and with our work and with our, and with our art and with our science and, 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 and ultimately with all the created order when God will one day at the final stage of the story restore all things. And the shalom of God once again will define the created order in a new heaven and a new earth. But between those two final stages... The first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is the age in which we live. That shorter arrow is shorter because we're the ones living the story out, right? It is this era um, of witness. Our book of Acts is about the beginning of that age. And what we're looking at in this passage is the critical transition from redemption to witness. That critical transition from, from one um, stage of the story to the next stage of the story, right? The coming of the hero and the hero's now leaving and the sending of his people as he leaves. And I want us to be careful with this and, and really dig in. I want you to think about these words. These are um, the final words of Jesus to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew, right? This is his last word to his disciples as he's getting ready to leave. This is what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is right after the resurrection. He's meeting with his disciples. This is post-death, burial, and resurrection. And we have to ask the question, what authority did Jesus not have before his death, burial, and resurrection that he now has. When he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, that was already his, right? We, we know from, from reading the story in Jesus' own testimony that he preexisted, right? He wasn't created when he was born. That was God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, taking on flesh so that God could ultimately so identify with his creation that he could redeem his creators. What authority was given to him in the death, burial, and resurrection? that wasn't his before. 
Well, very simply, I'm going to say it's the authority to forgive sin. See, God always had the authority and, in fact, the inclination and the heart to love. God is love. But God, in his love, has to still be just. And God, in his justice, cannot simply say, I overlook your sin. That would make him an unjust judge, right? A just judge couldn't look at his nephew, a young boy who committed murder, and say to him, you know what, I love you. You're my nephew, so you're free. That would make him an unjust judge, right? A a judge's uh, weight of burden is to execute justice. And when he sets aside justice and instead exercises mercy based on the fact that he loves, we would call that judge an unjust judge, right? The bottom line is our sin was rebellion against God. It was cosmic treason. It was the greatest sin. It was blasphemous in its nature. And the consequence of it was death. A price had to be paid And the beautiful story is that we have a God who paid that price on our behalf. A God who absorbed our rebellion and absorbed the pain that it caused. A God who stepped into our suffering, not just to identify with our suffering, but to redeem us from that suffering by by ultimately taking the penalty that caused the suffering to begin with. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he has the authority to forgive. He has the authority to call us out of our brokenness into his wholeness, out of our sin into his righteousness, out of our broken inheritance in our first Adam into our whole and beautiful inheritance in him. So he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, look, this authority has been given to me and now I'm going to give you your marching orders. Right? Here are your marching orders for the next act in this story, right? This next age that's coming. And here, here's, here it is. I, I got work for you. You're going to be my witnesses. There you go. You're going to be my witnesses. As you are going, you're going to live your life with gospel intentionality. As you're living your life as one of my disciples, you will make disciples of others. Um, This verse is often used at, um, it's often called missions, plural missions conferences. Um, And what I mean by that is a lot of times churches or agencies will have what they call missions conferences. And what they're emphasizing is generally global mission, like people uh, acting as what we customarily call missionaries, people that are, that are going to foreign lands or going to unreached people groups, and, and they're going out with the gospel to, to reach them. And, um, and so what is often emphasized is that simple word, go, <laughs> right? Go, therefore, go. And um, the challenge is this, that that is, I believe, uh, an inappropriate emphasis on this passage, because literally this text says, as you are going. I was making this very point one time. I was, I was invited to speak at a conference and it was, I had a banner behind me literally that, that was just this huge go with an exclamation point. And, um, and so I was given the job of unpacking this passage and felt the obligation to kind of say, well, 
you need to realize that this image behind me, this big go, is, is misrepresenting the call. Because what ends up happening, here's the thing, I want you to catch this. If you make that the emphasis, then pretty soon you have a special class of Christians that are witnesses. They're the people that go. They're the people that go overseas. They're the people that go make these big risks. There are these people. And then there's the rest of us, right? And our job is just to support them. Our job is just to maybe financially uh, invest in them. Our job is to pray for them. And that completely misrepresents the passage, right? Because the emphasis here isn't on a special group who go. The emphasis here is that if you are a follower of Christ, you are to be going as you are going. Make disciples. That's everybody, right? So I'm making this point at this conference. And literally, as I'm making that point, the banner falls off the wall behind me. <laughs> I mean, I literally could not make this up. It actually... F- fell off the wall behind me, and I just dropped the mic and walked off. I didn't really, but, um, but I did pause, and I was like, I don't, I, I didn't even know what to say. Um, but I, are you catching my point, you guys? I mean, there's a huge difference. The, the point here isn't there's a special group who's supposed to go. The point here is that as a follower of Christ, as, as somebody who is a disciple of Christ, by the way, there's no distinction. If you are a believer, you are a disciple. You are, as you are going, supposed to be his witness. Those are your marching orders. You don't have to be some special class of believer. You don't have to travel to a foreign land. You are a witness, right? That's why we don't talk about going to church. The word church, the Greek word ekklesia, literally means the called out people of God. We don't go to church. We are the church. And that's the emphasis with this, this final command. Jesus is saying, look, man, be my people, be my church, be my witnesses as you are going. Don't, don't take your spiritual life and stick it in a little closet that sits on Sunday. And then you got the rest of your professional and family life. Man, this is your identity. This is who you are as you are going. Be a disciple who makes disciples. Live your life, but live it with gospel intentionality. So you're doing it with a purpose. You're doing it with a goal. And this is why the sign of baptism, when Jesus says, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, that's why the sign of the baptism is, is really so appropriate, right? When we take someone and we baptize them, what do we do? We, we take a living person, we immerse them in death right? That's what, that's what symbolizes when you take somebody and you put them under the water. If I hold them there long enough, they will die, right? And symbolically, what they're being identified with is, is Christ's immersion or Christ's baptism into our sin, into our death, and then rising again to new life. And when someone is baptized, who they were stays dead with Christ and who they are rises up in identity with the risen Savior, so baptism is a beautiful and powerful symbol of who we are in Christ and of the commission that has been given to us. It's saying, I have a new alignment. I have a new purpose. I have a new life in Christ. I am one with the resurrected Jesus, and I live from that victory. And I look forward to the restoration of all things. Now, I'm going to pause there. We do have some baptisms coming up. If you are a believer in Jesus and you have not been dunked, you have the opportunity to be dunked. If, if you're not sure about what baptism is or, or what it means, I'm going to invite you to find out. Visit Connection Point. We have a baptism class coming up that's going to unpack in much greater detail what it means. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, it would be our great honor 
uh, to assist you in, um, in following him in obedience, okay? All right, so take a look at verse 6. <laughs> Having set the stage, we get to look at the text. All right, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All right, so after this great speech in which Jesus envisioned them to, to as you are going, be disciples who make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All authority has been given to me, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. After this great speech, the disciples are like, yeah, that's great stuff, Jesus. But, but first, we have some important questions. There's some important things you're not telling us. There are some things that I think you're missing a little bit. When do we, and by we, we we mean them as as Jewish Christians, those who are part of the nation of Israel, when do we get our political authority and our national autonomy back? Israel, during this period of time, um, lived under Roman domination. The, The Romans... Um, occupied and ruled the land, and Israel was, was um, really under subjugation to them. And that created a lot of, of political and, and, and social tension for the Israelites, and they were yearning for the day when they would have their kingdom back, when they would have their king, where they could, they could follow God and not live under Gentile dominion. When do we get our national identity back? You guys, I'm going to propose that this was the wrong question at the wrong time, showing that they were focused on the wrong goal. See, they expected Jesus, now that he was risen, they had demonstrated that he is the king of the new kingdom. They expected Jesus to march into Israel, march into Jerusalem, and once again restore the kingdom to Israel. And that Israel would become the beacon of the kingdom of God on earth through which all the other nations would ultimately find peace. See, they had a felt need. And their felt need, the most important and and immediate problem they faced was the Roman occupation that they had to deal with daily as they did their commerce and lived their lives and navigated streets, they dealt with the oppression of Roman occupation on a daily basis. What could be more important than delivering God's people from underneath the heel of this evil empire? What could be more important than addressing the social and political ills that came with that? The pagan idolatry, the abuse, the slavery, the, 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 all of the, the stuff that came with it. See, it hadn't dawned on them yet that God was doing something much bigger and much more important than just redeeming Israel. He was redeeming all of creation. They were so small in their vision, so parochial, so self-centered, that they couldn't see it and they didn't know it. You guys, God's primary goal isn't to restore the kingdom to Israel. God's primary goal is to restore his shalom to the entire earth. Israel will be blessed, but the restoration project is way bigger than that. So in verses 7 and 8, we see Jesus' response. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is, there's a lot here. And in fact, we're going to be unpacking um, a lot of this in coming weeks. I can't unpack it all this morning. 
But I want you to see this point. Did Jesus answer their question? No. No, he really didn't. He didn't even try. Here's the thing that can be infuriating about Jesus. He never explains himself. He just doesn't. He doesn't try to justify his actions. He doesn't try to persuade us that he's right. All he does is say, trust me and follow. This is who I am. You've seen my heart. This is what I'm asking you to do. Follow. So he doesn't explain anything. He doesn't unpack anything. He just says, you know what? You guys, don't worry about that. That's a little above your pay grade. Right? You're, you're kind of asking to sit in the seat of the Father, and that's not your seat. So I'll tell you what, why don't you just do what I ask you to do? Why don't you just follow where I'm asking you to go, right? <laughs> it's like, you guys listen. Are you listening to me? Eyes, focus, focus. Look at me, look at me, listen. Be my witnesses. That's all you need to hear right now. That's the important message. I know you got a lot of other questions. That, just stop that. Be my witnesses, right? Don't try to figure it all out. Just trust me and play your part. I did the work, and I'm now entrusting to you the message of that work. Go be my messengers. I won the war. And I'm entrusting you guys with that message. You're now my heralds. You're going to go out into the world and, and declare my victory. I solved your greatest problem. I won you reconciliation with God. You are now ministers of reconciliation. And the way you operate as a minister of reconciliation is to be a witness of who I am and what I've done. I rose from the dead so that you could be raised back to shalom with God, with yourselves, with each other, ultimately and eventually with all the created order. But not yet. It's going to start working its way out now. You have shalom with God, and it's going to start working its way out now, but you're not going to fully realize it yet. Not yet. It's not that part of the story yet. In this part of the story, you get to be my mouth. You get to be my hands. You get to be my feet. You, you get to go and show and tell. You get to be my witnesses, my representatives in this world. And then he did the absolutely last thing anyone expected him to do. He left. Take a look at verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sights. Um, yes, we did just read about a man floating up into a cloud and disappearing. And yes, that is crazy ridiculous. I get it. I get it. But it's not the craziest thing going on here. It really isn't. You guys, the risen king just left. And he left the news of his victory in the hands of these confused, conflicted timid men and women. He just solved the world's greatest problem. And he left the proclamation of that good news in the hands of these people. He said, I won. And the message of my victory has the power to change the world. Here's that message. I give it to you and I'm leaving. 
Here's the greatest message, the most powerful thing ever given to mankind. I'll be back later. Verse 10. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. While they were standing and gazing into heaven. Pause there for a minute. I mean, literally, you guys, think about this. They just saw Jesus float away. You know what I'm saying? Can you imagine their shock? I'm guessing they looked a little bit like this, right? (laughs) I mean, for real. If I was a talented meme maker, I would have actually made a meme, but I'm not. Um, Seriously, you guys, put, put yourself in their shoes, right? Jesus just did the unthinkable. He looked at them. They're like, they're like, Jesus, you coming with us to Jerusalem now? Do we get our kingdom back now? He's like, meh, I'm not going to talk about that. I've given you a message and that message is going to change the world. Bye. And then he floats into heaven. Seriously, they were slack jawed, shocked and amazed. I think the greatest amazement wasn't that they just saw a man float up into a cloud. It was that that man trusted them like he did. It's just starting to sink in. Holy cow, this is what he said. And then he says, I'm taking off and I'm leaving this with you. I mean, it's time for the king's triumphal march. And he leaves. But you guys, that's what he did. He said, uh, I did the greatest thing human history has ever known. I solved its greatest problem. And I'm leaving the message of that victory with you. That message is the seed of the new kingdom. That message, when planted, will transform the entire world. It has the power to bring life from death, to bring restoration and shalom, because it is a message of a living Savior who is living to redeem, who continues to be active in this world. Here you go. And he leaves. And then in verses 8 and 9, these two guys randomly appear. And no one really seems to be surprised, uh, but really, why would they be? I mean, how surprising is it when you have two dudes all dressed in white who suddenly appear after you just watch Jesus float up into the sky and get swallowed up by a cloud? They're like, of course, this is normal for today, right? (laughs) These guys, nothing shocking here. Um, And these guys are are obviously angels, and they've come to kind of close the deal, right? They're they're like, all right, that was left a little open-ended right? Jesus gave you a shocking message and then just abruptly disappeared. We're here to kind of close the deal and make sure you really heard, right? So what's their message? It's the same thing. They're like, hey, you guys, you heard Jesus. You heard what he had to say. He's coming back. Don't worry. The same way you saw him go, he's coming back. There's there's going to be a second coming. There will be a restoration. But right now, you have your marching orders. That's what, the mess, that's what the angels say. Yeah, this was amazing, but you know what? Stop standing around. You got a job to do. And it's time for you to do it. Be disciples who make disciples. That's why he left and you're still here. 
That's why he did what he did. And he's waiting for the full restoration because during this time, there's a critical thing to be done and it will be done by you, the followers of Christ. You guys, that's the purpose of this age. That's it right there. That is the purpose of this age. That is why Jesus left and that is why he's delaying in returning. Because in this age, he has a purpose. And that purpose is for his people to be his witness. To be disciples who make disciples. So I have a few applications for us coming out of this. Obviously, this is a historical document telling us about what occurred in the early church, this critical transition from, from one act to the next, right? The act of redemption to the act of, of, of the church or the act of the uh, witness. But it is incredibly insightful because even though we live many, many years later and culturally, man, we're worlds apart from that world, the nature of our existence really hasn't changed much. We still live our lives. We still eat our food. We still get married and have jobs and have babies and have the purpose for this age is the same. So the first point of application I want to make is this. This is the reason we're here. This is the reason we're here. All right, think about this, you guys. If you were driving from New York to San Diego to meet someone you loved, you know, maybe it's your, your, your husband or your wife or your, your best friend. It's somebody in whom your soul delights, right? And you're looking forward to getting to San Diego because, because you're just yearning to see them. But you've got a long road trip between New York and, and San Diego, right? So what would you do? You would probably plug in San Diego on your GPS, right? If you're, if you're an iPhone person or an Android, you're going to type it in, you're going to put it on your dash, and, and that's going to help you navigate, Right? If you're old school and you love maps, that's fine. You're just going to map it all out, but you're going to get from here to there. You would, pl- you would plot your path. Now, along the way, would you see sights? Sure, absolutely. You would see sights. You would experience life. You would, you would make a point, man. You're traveling across the country, right? That, that's a unique and beautiful experience. And so I'm sure that you would, as you were going, find enriching and powerful ways to enjoy the trip. But would you ever lose sight of why you were making the trip? Would you ever lose sight of your destination? Would you ever just suddenly find yourself wandering uh, accidentally through Canada and then landing up in some Arctic field up in Southern Alaska and be like, well, how did I get here? And where was I going? I don't think so. Because you had a compelling purpose that drove the journey. A lot of times our lives end up in crisis because we've never really realized the compelling purpose that drives our journey. We have a compelling purpose. And that purpose ultimately is (laughs) to be reunited with Jesus, to experience the restoration of shalom, right? You know where you're going. You know why you're going there. And that helps keep you on track. Right? Here's the thing, you guys, we're going to a party. 
We're going to a party. When you look in, in the book of Revelation at the end of the story, it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? Jesus, when, when he's hanging out with his disciples after his death, burial, and resurrection, keeps saying this weird thing. He's like, I won't drink again until we're in the kingdom. I'm not going to drink again until we're in the kingdom. <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, you know what? I'm going to hold off on the wine because there's a special occasion coming. And it'll be time to break it out. And that wine that I made at the wedding was just a foretaste of wine I'm going to break out when it's the wedding supper of the Lamb, when God and his people are reunited and we see the reestablishment of Shalom. There's a party coming. That's where we're going. That's already been won. That's already been decreed. That, that, that's not up in the air. We're going to a party. And that party ultimately initiates the restoration of all things. And you guys, we're going there because we're loved and because we love. The God of the universe loves us, loves you individually, not just us corporately. Jesus died for you, rose again for you. And when you come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, you're not just going to be a faceless person, one among the crowd. You are going to be greeted by the Savior by name because he knows you and he loves you. And you've tasted a little bit of that love, follower of Christ. And you know how compelling and life-changing it is. That's where we're going. <laughs> That's where we're going. And everything between here and there is sightseeing. You get that? Everything between here and there is sightseeing. We've plotted our journey. We know where we're going. We have a purpose for it. We have a destination that's worth getting to. Everything between here and there is sightseeing. The second point I think we need to see is this. We have to go deep to go wide. We have to go deep to go wide. I had a friend who always said it this way. You have to smoke what you sell. <laughs> you have to be a disciple to make disciples. You have to be a disciple to make disciples. And this, it was just this morning, my brain kind of blew up on this point as I was sitting in it. And I was thinking about the loss of shalom and the four critical areas of relationship with myself, with God, with, with people, with the created order. And thinking about how we often um, lose sight of the dynamics of how that plays out in our lives. And even churches do. Sometimes you'll have churches that exist to restore shalom between people and themselves. We call those therapeutic churches. And basically what you hear when you go there is, is God loves you as you are and your happiness is the most important thing in the world. And so the church is all about helping you deal with your past, deal with your guilt, break free from the chains that are holding you back so you can break through to the next level. You know all the cliches. But that's their whole thing is really just about how does the gospel apply to the loss of shalom with myself? There are other churches that it's all about the loss of shalom with God. Really has nothing to do with you. It's all about God's glory. And, and so we're going to teach you as much as you can know about God. We're going to teach you everything that's going to fill your head. And we're going to, and then some churches are all about loss or shalom with, with, with people. And they become reconciling churches and politically activist churches. And, and, and some churches are all about the loss of shalom between us and the created order. And they're all about redeeming their missional, sometimes missional churches, redeeming how our work glorifies God and how our efforts. Here's the thing, you guys. 
when we taste our forgiveness in Christ and we have our shalom once again, we, we experience peace with God because Jesus made peace with God. We then start experiencing the peace of God. The shalom of God actually starts invading our hearts and we start hearing the invitation from God instead of the threat. We start actually seeing God as a loving father instead of a, a perfect um, being that ultimately is alienating and, 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 and we feel that. And that ultimately spills its way out into every other area of life. To be a disciple of Jesus means ultimately to experience an increasing level of the shalom of God in every critical area of your life. It does mean growing in your relationship with God. It does mean having a deepening understanding and relationship with God. It also means coming to peace with yourself and experiencing the shalom of God within yourself, being freed from your shame and freed from your guilt and freed from the bondage areas of your life that are holding you back from moving into the potential that God has placed in you for your good and for his glory. And it does mean moving into the shalom of God in critical relationships, learning how to forgive and be forgiven, to love and be loved, to actually open up and say, I'm worth being loved and you're worth being loved. And yes, I've hurt you and you've hurt me, but we're going to learn how to forgive and share grace. And it does mean learning how, how your shalom plays out in your workplace, how you can do your work for the glory of God, how, how you can simply image God in creating and managing and structuring. And you can glorify God in all these areas as you simply move more and more deeply into the reestablishment of shalom through the person and the work of Christ in your life now. Not perfectly, not completely, because we live in the already not yet tension of the overlapping of the ages. The old age is passing away. The new age is breaking in. We're not there yet. We're not going to do this perfectly. But being a disciple means exploring and experiencing this at a deeper and more profound level as you move forward in your following of Christ. And it's from that experience that you'll learn to be a witness. It is from that place that you'll learn how to invite others into the experience. We need to learn to go deep if we're going to go wide. We have to be disciples who make disciples. Because I think that's part of the reason Jesus did it this way. That's part of the reason Jesus left and left us the message. Because there's so much to be discovered and so much to be experienced. And so much of that has to do with the gospel overcoming the fear and reluctance and self-protection and pride of our hearts. We are trophies of his grace, but we come to reflect the glory of that grace more and more as we come to experience that shalom, to be freed into the beauty of God's redemptive flow to a greater and greater degree. We are to be people who deeply know the love of God and experience the love of God. And from that place of loving and being loved, we invite others to taste what is so delightful to us. And that's why it's so essential that we don't just go to church. <laughs> that's why it's so essential that we don't just do a religious thing. This isn't about religion. It's not about having our compartments and doing the right things and fixing our behavior. It's about loving and being loved. Everything else finds its way when we find that. So we are called out, we are loved, and we are being transformed. And we're learning to love and be loved and forgive and be forgiven. And it's because of this dynamic 
loving experience of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another because the love of God has to be experienced in community. And as we discover that experience in community, that experience becomes irresistible to unbelievers. The most attractive and dynamic witness we can give to this world is a community of people whose hearts are being transformed. I don't care if you're able to answer every question you'll never be asked. That's what a lot of apologetics is about. I am prepared to answer every question that I'll probably never be asked. By the way, you should be asking me this right now. You can win every argument. You can defeat every every person who's promoting a different philosophy of life or a different political or social agenda. You are ready. And you're missing the boat. I'm not saying we don't need to be intellectually prepared. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be careful thinkers who can articulate carefully. I am saying we don't become good witnesses by becoming good debaters. We become good witnesses by going deep in our experience of the love of God, sharing that love with others, inviting people into that redemptive flow. That's irresistible. That's an apologetic that can't be answered. The third thing I think we need to see is this. We need to stop taking ourselves so seriously. Seriously. We need to, take our, we need to stop taking ourselves so seriously. I, I talk to a lot of people, man, and, and, and when you realize, man, when he's like, holy cow, Jesus left and he left this message with me, that can become an overwhelming burden. That can become an overwhelming weight. Because here's the thing, we're supposed to be disciples who make disciples, right? Is there a perfect disciple in the room? If you are, you should probably be in heaven with Jesus. Okay? We're all in process. We are all learning to be loved by God and to love God in response. We are all learning how the love of God realigns our appetites away from things that give death to the things that give life. We are all learning how the giver of good things is freeing us into those good things. We're all learning. Here's the thing. You don't have to be perfect because you can't be. You'll never know enough. You'll never be enough to be worthy of the commission that's been given to you. The honor that's been placed on us and the weight of the commission is so great, we will never measure up to what's been entrusted to us. But here's the thing. We don't have to be because he is. I don't have to have my act completely together because he's got it together for me. I mean, that's part of the beauty of the message, isn't it? That I'm a sinner in need of grace and I receive grace. Why do we think when we move out into the world that we should be carrying any other message? Look, I'm the person who has it all together and now can tell you about how you don't have it all together, but you need grace, so good thing God loves you. We become powerful witnesses when we move out on our weakness. God's strength is demonstrated on our weakness. God's wisdom is demonstrated in our foolishness. When we get out of the way and stop being so prideful, so self-centered, so arrogant, so worried about how we look and how we come off and how, how our glory is either magnified or diminished, man, when we get over ourselves, we become powerful witnesses for the kingdom of God. You don't have to have all the answers, you guys. You don't have to have it all together. 
And that's really good because I'm fairly confident that that's exactly how the disciples felt when Jesus left. Um, They were just discovering in many ways how broken and messed up they were. But their job wasn't to have all the answers or to be completely competent. Their job was simply to walk in obedience, to be a witness, right? To in their life, in their deeds and in their words, point to Jesus in their deeds and in their words, to simply let people know that the king has won, that the savior has come, that our greatest problem has been solved. And just like the disciples, I think the reality is we're tempted to just stand around and be like, really? Did that just happen? That's been entrusted to me. I'm supposed to do that. I don't know enough. I'm not changed enough. I'm not free enough. I don't have my act together enough. All right, here's a little secret that we're going to unpack in coming weeks. Jesus didn't leave the disciples alone. And and, and I'm actually using pretty careful language here. Jesus didn't trust the disciples with the message of the gospel. Because when he left, the spirit came. And we'll talk about that in coming weeks. When he left, the spirit came. God never left the power of the gospel in our hands. Man, we'd all be messed up right? It's his job, his work, his glory. We're just dependent. We're little mud men and mud women learning what it means to live in the overflow of the glory of God, right? So he fills us with the spirit of God to do what we're not able to do, right? It's not our strength. It's his strength. It's not our wisdom. It's his work. When we move out in obedience to become witnesses of the gospel, we're simply inviting the spirit of God to do what the spirit of God does, Raise people from the dead. See, God knew we were helpless, that we couldn't do it on our own. So he empowered us. We're being called to be faithful, but ultimately our faith isn't in our ability or in our ability to, to, be, to have it all together. It's, it's in God who does the work. We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. That's where we're going next week. All right, I'm going to put some uh, questions up on the screen to help lead us. We're going to create a time of reflection for you to pray and and just listen to God and let God speak to your heart. Um, We're going to share communion together in a moment. It's a a beautiful thing that we get to do every single week uh, in obedience to Jesus, right? As we simply look back to and celebrate, but also look forward to um, his first coming and celebrate his second, right? As followers of Christ. Let me pray for us and we'll go into a time of reflection. Father God, I thank you that you are, um, by nature, a generous God. That you love, and so therefore you give. You give honor. You give power. You give dignity. You give forgiveness. I thank you, Lord, that you have called us to a task that is too great for us. That you have given us an honor that is too high for us. That you have put on us a cloak that doesn't fit us. (laughs) And then you've said, trust me. Because my strength is made strong in your weakness. Help us, Lord, to be people who delight deeply in your love for us. Who are just undone by that grace 
and moved by that love. And then from that place, Lord, let us start seeing where we are on the journey, the true end and purpose of our lives, that we are moving toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are moving toward the restoration of all things. And Spirit, then I would pray that you would awaken us to the great dignity and the weight of responsibility that you have placed on us to be witnesses. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.